person that had it before me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, fantastic to be here, finally. Anybody got stuck on the, uh, on the ring road? It was, uh, it was really good to finally get here. Hey, Kess, how are you going? We left 20 minutes earlier. We spent an hour and 15 minutes on the freeway. It's incredible. But, uh, yeah. Um, I'd like to welcome my dad and his fiancée. It's fantastic to have them here. It's uh, not something I ever really expected, and it's, it's wonderful to have you here. So make sure he doesn't leave before he shakes your hand. Please. All right. We're going to be reading um, from Psalm 19. It's going to be a, a study through Psalm 19 as we go. And uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, I just want to thank you, dear Lord. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity to preach your word. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word, that we can understand it, that we can trust it, that we can believe it with all our hearts. Prepare my heart, dear Lord, I pray, as, as, I, as I bring this message forward. Prepare the hearts of those that are ready to receive it. Open their eyes that they may see their hearts and their ears that they may hear. Father, your wonderful words, hide me behind your cross, I pray, dear Lord. And let the words be glorifying unto you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's incredible as I thought about Psalm 19. It's, it's, it's my favourite psalm, I would have to say, next to Psalm 119, which is all about the Word of God. Um, and the more I looked at it, the more I thought, really, this psalm, the entire psalm, is a testimony of sorts. It's certainly a testimony of my life. It's a testimony of how I came to trust in, uh, in God. It speaks about his creation. It speaks about that the entire creation sings the glory of God and actually declares that to us. It then talks about the word of God and how it is the word of God and we can trust it and that it's sure for our lives. And then it moves into this beautiful repentant state which I almost find myself constantly at. And it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. So if you'd open it with... Open to it with me. So it's Psalm 19, and we're going to read all 14 verses. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Incidentally, that's usually part of the psalm. Okay, so that's not just the intro. It should be really verse 1, you would think, you know, because it's always there. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. And night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them, keeping of them, there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. First consider who's actually writing this psalm. It was the king, the king of Israel. He was the second king of Israel ordained by God, King David. We know that Jesus our Lord comes as a direct descendant from this kingly, uh, this kingly man. From this, from this man comes our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. David, knowing and experiencing the wealth that comes through leading a country, the power that actually comes from that. He looks into the heavens and he recognises that this entire heavens, this, in, 
Everything that he sees above in this starry night declares the glory of God. Incredible. The word declare is to make clear. So we look into the starry night and that makes clear the glory of God. There must be a God. There has to be. The heavens declare it according to scripture. They make it clear. But it doesn't stop there. It moves on and says the firmament showeth his handiwork. The firmament is actually a a place of support. It supports the planets, the stars and everything that's there. That also shows his handiwork. But it doesn't stop there either. It says, day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. It's uttering speech. It's uttering speech in a way that we can understand. We know that it's in a way that we can understand because it says it in the very next verse. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. No speech nor language. Come to Australia as a new arrival, you don't understand the language. It's very difficult to be able to be accountable for anything that somebody says to you, isn't it? But here we have a voice spoken to us where it is available for every language and every people in every part of the earth to understand the glory of God shown through us by just the creation that we have around us. It's incredible. We are multilingual. We, we speak so many different languages. The heavens speak with one language and we can all understand. We don't have an excuse. We must be able to see and realise God must be. That's a place that I was at a number of years ago. I had to get to a point within my life to determine within my own heart, does God exist? Is there such a one as God? I mean... I was, I was 29 when, when I gave my life to the Lord. But it didn't come without a lot of searching. Didn't do all that well in school. But I loved reading about science. I loved reading physics and stuff like that. And as I'm reading some of these books, it was amazing to me that some of these people couldn't recognise that God existed. And here we have it telling us so clearly, day unto day uttereth speech. And night unto night showeth knowledge. And without any language, it declares to us in language that we can understand. It's interesting, at night it shows knowledge, isn't it? We look at the astronomers, when do they usually do their studies? They study the skies, they study the stars at night. But it needs to be pretty dark, you don't see any of their their, uh, massive telescopes in the middle of the city, do you? It's somewhere right out in the country. It's somewhere perched up high on a hill that they can see through the absolute darkness around them. So there's no, there's no diluting light that's going to take away from them to be able to witness the glory of God. And yet, something's amiss. Something's amiss. Why don't they see it? Why don't they recognise it? I read a book by a man called Stephen Hawking. Some of you might know it, called The Brief History of Time. And in this book, Stephen Hawking is a man that suffers from, ah, what what is that, that it's motor neuron disease, that's right. So he's he's limited to a wheelchair, he speaks with the assistance of a uh, computer which actually uh, gives him an artificial voice. He's still around today and this was one of the biggest sellers when it was released and I was one of the ones that actually bought it. It's written well, it's written in fairly good layman's terms. He comes to the question of God as well throughout that book and yet he's predisposed to the idea of evolution. But as he goes through and he starts banting about these numbers, he speaks about the Big Bang. Now just before we get to the Big Bang, I want you to understand something. Up until they thought of the Big Bang, people had believed that this entire universe had always existed. Yet, we have Christians and those that believe in God and believe that there was a creation. They all said, no, 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 no. The universe had a beginning. And that was held right up until around about the 1960s. One saying that the universe had a beginning, the other saying that it had always existed. Carl Sagan said the cosmos is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. Albert Einstein, 
he came up with a particular theory, and it was called the cosmological constant. Again, it was a mathematical equation that to him proved that the universe had always existed. So they need an absolute, they need a constant, they need something that always was, had always existed, always been there. Today, well not today, a number of years ago, Albert Einstein, that was, Einstein said that that was the greatest blunder of his career. They did indeed discover that the universe had a beginning. It had a beginning. There was a moment where there was no such thing as time nor space. But in a moment of time, it came into being. It came into being. Now, people that are predisposed to thinking that there is no such thing as God believe nothing created everything. I mean, that's insane. It goes against everything that science speaks about. Nothing created everything. No, no, every cause had a first cause. They recognise this, that if there was a cause, something caused that cause to be. Oh, so then comes the brilliant question, isn't it? To who made God? Natalie asked me that question once. Dad, who made God? You know? Well, isn't that that's a good logical thought? But the problem is it fails in one particular point. Remember what I said. Every cause had a first cause. God was not caused. He'd always been. But the thing is, if it had a first cause, then that first cause must have always existed. Because otherwise there'd be a cause of the first cause which wouldn't make him the first cause, but the second. You understand? Sorry, I didn't mean to... I want to muddle your brain up a little at all, but there had to be a beginning point. There had to be one that always has been. And indeed... Have a look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Hmm. We did a Bible study recently and we started in Genesis and we're going through Genesis, the first 11 chapters. It's taking a long time. We spent one entire night on three words. We spent the next night on the fourth word and its significance within this text. Have a look at the first three words. In the beginning. What we have here is a declaration of time. Time is declared here, in the beginning. It speaks that there was a beginning. It speaks and we understand that there must have been a beginning, and this says in the beginning. The next word is God. In the beginning, God. God or as he already was there in the beginning. He pre-existed the beginning. Therefore becomes the cause of the beginning. So, Stephen Hawking and a number of others realised that there was a beginning. All of a sudden we have a beginning to deal with. And you'd figure that everybody, everybody in the world all of a sudden would become Christians. They'd all come and acknowledge, hey, wow, God exists, there was a beginning. No. No. They had to then start postulating ideas around how this beginning must have begun. So they come up with something called the singularity. Ah, what a stupid name. It's this little thing that's infinitely small, infinitely dense, with infinite mass. Nothing exploded. First there was nothing, and then it exploded. And now we have this entire universe where you and I and... Everything that's here came out of. But listen to what Stephen Hawking had to say. He basically said that through this big bang, through the singularity, through this big bang, if that, if that explosion had have been any slower in its expansion, then we couldn't exist. Life couldn't exist. We wouldn't have the elements that we needed for life to be able to exist. But listen to the words that he says. He says, if it was slower by... One part in a hundred thousand million million. One part in a hundred thousand million million. I'll try and put that into another way. It's, it's one part in ten to the sixteenth power, okay? Now, to try and get to one part in one hundred thousand million million, if you can imagine that this universe, according to them, has been around for 15 billion years, right? One part in 10 to the 16th, or one part to 100,000 million million, is one, is finding one second for every second 
that has been in history for 15 billion years. Getting a bit of a picture of how big that is? I mean, that's, that's a massive number. That's the chances that he says if the expansion of this universe at that Big Bang um, was any slower or faster, by that part, we wouldn't exist. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, you have to be kidding. I mean, how can you think still that there is no God with that chance? But he didn't just put it there. All of a sudden, then he spoke about temperature. And he said if the temperature of the universe at one second after the Big Bang was any different by one part in 100,000 million million, there wouldn't be enough heavy elements within the, within the universe. Stars couldn't be created. Life could not exist. And I'm reading this book, and I didn't believe in God at that time, but I tell you, it converted me. I'm looking at it going, what happens to people? Do they become so smart they become stupid? You know, you know, I'm, you know I'm, I'm, I'm no genius at school, but I mean, this didn't take them long to work out that this is pretty impossible odds here. And yet that's what they're predisposed to. That's what they believe. They hold on to that particular position because they have a basis for it. Their basis is they want to reject God from the beginning. But the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. Going on, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their cry has gone out through all the earth. Even to the ends of the world. Verse 4. Let's keep going with it. Verse 4. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. Which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven. And his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. There's four parts to this psalm that I was able to realise and that I wanted to bring forward to this message. This, that concludes the first part of it. But let's have a look at it again. His going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. That particular verse is explaining what goes before it. In other words, it's recognising that the entire earth and everybody within it is exposed to this incredible declaration of creation itself. And you know we know it. Do you know that we know it? Do you know that in science they have this particular term called the anthropic principle? Now some of you like science, some of you don't. I like it. Alright, so I'm just going to talk about it for a little bit more, okay? I know Marie doesn't like it all that much, but it's, it's great fun to get into. But have a look at this. This is an idea called the anthropic principle. And it's a principle that basically states that this entire universe was created specifically for man to exist. There's a couple of parts to it, but more particularly that this entire universe seems uniquely tuned for the existence of man. And I want to give you just a handful of parameters so you can sort of get your head around. You know how a lot of the times we sit there thinking, yeah, but it's so big, you know, and, and, and Earth is so small and, and we're just somewhere on that small ball and... You know, why do you need such an incredible universe? We're going to talk about the very, very small and the very, very big and try and have a look at how this fits. And I want you to have a look at this. The very, very small, let's think of an atom. In the atom, there's a strong nuclear force that holds everything together. If the strong nuclear force was slightly weaker... Now, atoms, that's made of atoms. That's made of atoms. So am I. Everything here is made of atoms. Okay? Uh, Everything that's seen is made by that which is unseen. Interesting, that's in scripture. So atoms we can't see. But the strong nuclear force, if it was slightly weaker, multi-proton nuclei would not hold together. Hydrogen would be the only element in the universe if it was slightly weaker. If this force was slightly stronger, not only would hydrogen be rare in the universe, but the supply of the various life essential elements heavier than iron, elements resulting from this fission, would be insufficient. Either way, life would be impossible. And mind you, I got this out of a scientific journal by someone that's not a believer. Okay? So I want you to think about what's being said here. The mass of the universe. We speak about how incredibly large this universe is. 
Do you know that there's a reason for this universe to be so large? Without it being as large as it is, we couldn't exist, according to this scientist. The mass of the universe, any smaller, there would be no helium and therefore no heavy elements necessary for life. Thus we see a reason why the universe is as big as it is. If it were any smaller or larger, not even one planet like Earth would be possible. The parent star, we've got a star, the sun, known as the star, the parent star of our solar system. If greater, not enough heavy elements to make rocky planets. If less, understand where they're getting their ideas from. They're getting their ideas from evolution, but it's the same, same principle. If less, stellar density and radiation would be too great. The parent star mass, if the, you know, the mass of the sun, if any greater luminosity output from the star would not be sufficient, sufficiently stable. If less, range of distances appropriate for life would be too narrow. Tidal forces would disrupt the rotational period for a planet of the right distance. The parent star colour, if redder, insufficient photosynthesis response. No plant, life, no food, no life. If bluer, insufficient photosynthesis response, exactly the same thing. The gravity, if stronger, planet's atmosphere would retain huge amounts of ammonia and methane. If weaker, planet's atmosphere would lose too much water. The distance from the star, further away, too cool for a water cycle, stable water cycle. If closer, too warm for a stable water cycle. It goes on and on and on. The rotation period, if longer, temperature differences would be too great. If shorter, atmospheric wind velocities would be too great. The thickness of the crust... If it's too thick, there's too much oxygen would be transferred to the atmosphere, to the crust. If thinner, volcanic and tectonic activity would make life impossible on the Earth. talks about the magnetic, uh, the magnetic field, the axial tilt. You know the tilt of the Earth? How it's tilted? Yeah, that's what allows us for the four seasons that we have. It's tilted. If greater surface temperature differences too great, if less surface temperatures too small... The albedo, oxygen to nitrogen in the atmosphere, water vapour levels in the atmosphere. If greater, runaway greenhouse effect would develop. If less, insufficient greenhouse would develop. Incidentally, it's not carbon dioxide that changes our weather, it's the water vapour. Carbon dioxide is something that's necessary for plant life, just in case you get into the idea of global warming through the use of carbon dioxide. It's water vapour, makes up 97% of our atmosphere and is the major cause of changes of warmth and the like. Atmospheric electric discharge, seismic activity, it goes on and on. Listen to this quote by American astronomer George Greenstein. He says, As we survey all the evidence, the thought insistently arises that some supernatural agency, or rather agency, capital A, must be involved. It is possible, is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being? Was it God who stepped in and so providently crafted the cosmos for our benefit? Interesting. Another quote by uh, Robert Jastra. I love this quote. This is beautiful. This guy is an agnostic. He doesn't believe in God. And he writes in his book, God and the Astronomers. Jastra said, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason... The story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Isn't that great? The heavens declare the glory of God. And there is no language nor speech where their voice is not heard. People, you may have a particular reason for not wanting to believe in God. Richard Dawkins said in, his, in the last interview that I listened to, he said, why does God make himself so invisible? The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare them. So you have a predisposition for rejecting God, and that's what science is about. It speaks about naturalism. We cannot invoke a creator. We must take naturalism to its nth degree, even if it means we need to invoke metaphysics of some other kind. Let's think of a multiverse, for example, for one universe to exist with life by chance. But the heavens declare the glory of God. I, had, I was in Footscray Mall once. I was about 17 years old. Um, I was hanging around with a whole bunch of guys and we were, we were having a bit of fun. And a girl... And her friend came up to me. It was the first time I ever heard the gospel. She didn't really share the gospel all that much. She just said, you know, 
God, God is, you know, he, there, there is a God. And she came up and she wanted to talk to me. And as she's talking to me, um, I, you know, I said to her, you know, where? I mean, where's the evidence for God? And she simply said, open your eyes and look around. Open your eyes and look around. I was blind. Absolutely blind. I couldn't see the nose in front of my face. And that's saying something. I couldn't see. I couldn't see this incredible creation, you know. And I said to her, look, I've got to go. I've got the last train back to Melton, you know, and, and I've, got to, I've got to run. I've got to take off. She goes, I'll go because I'm going to miss it. She goes, well, I'll pray that the train will be late. And I said, great, great. You pray, I'll run, right? And I ran. And guess what I'm doing as I'm running? I'm praying. <laughs> God, please let the train be late. Please let the train be late, you know. And I get to the station, I get over the overpass. Back then they had a big rickety overpass. And I, and I run down the ramp and I can see a train pulling out and taking off in the direction where my train is meant to go. And I get down to the, to, the, uh, to the platform and I see that big yellow sign sitting there with the conductor directly underneath it, just waving it off, you know. And the sign said, Backers Marsh Line. And I missed my train, or so I thought. I then went up to the conductor and I said, Mr. Duck. And he goes, Miss what? And I said, the Backers Marsh train. It's the last train. Last train, 8.30. Last train. Still remember it. And uh, he goes, no, no, trains are delayed 20 minutes. The lines are down. <laughs> and I, I, no kidding, I, I went to, you know the seat? They've got the bench seats and that there. And I went down. Oh, delayed. You know, that thing still sticks in my head today. I was 17 years old. You know, you can share the gospel with somebody as badly as that young girl shared the gospel with me. And if the heart is willing to receive the truth of God, then it sticks with you forever. I didn't hear the gospel. I didn't hear it again for 13 years. 13 years. The life that I led for that 13 years wasn't a good life. It was any time, any time I could have lost it. Any time I could have lost it. That's frightening. 13 years I didn't hear the gospel. The Lord has mercy on someone like me. You know? At that time, I was only full of myself. My only concern was for me. Couldn't care about anybody else around me. I was as selfish as you can possibly think. And, and that's how I was living my life. So I was running around. I had the drugs. I had the girls. I had all the so-called fun. But, mate, there's some times I think back now I can't believe that I lived through. But 13 years, Christian, you need to be out there sharing this news. As imperfectly as you think you do it, you need to be out there sharing this news. I don't care whether you're a new believer or an old believer. If the Lord can use a donkey, he can use anything. And I'm, I'm convicting myself as I'm saying this. Please don't look at me and think that I'm the total epitome of preaching the gospel to friends and relatives. I'm not. I'm not. Still a pretty well-kept secret. But God help me if I don't preach the truth, even though it convicts me. You need to be out there sharing the gospel, guys. You need to be. You need to be consistent, vigilant, consistently doing the same thing. There'll be a lot of people that won't want to hear it. That's okay. It doesn't matter. Move on. You need to be out there. 13 years. I ended up hearing the gospel at an Amway conference. You know Amway? Did I ever phone you? No. All right. So, you know, even that can convert the soul. 
So, the denial of the existence of God is foolish. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14 verse 1. The Bible continues to say in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's a distinction between those that are wise and those that are foolish. The fools deny the existence of God even though the evidence and the heavens declare his glory all around us. Yet fools reject it. They don't want to know. And we see that right through history. Backing up what Pastor Frank said, you think us as past heathen are ignorant. You think us as people that really didn't believe at a particular time that God existed are ignorant. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 78, please. God had dealt with a specific people. And this particular people had no excuse. Excuse me. If you remember, Israel has been in captivity. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. 430. They've been there for that time. They've been in captivity and under enslavement, not for the entire time, but only when a new pharaoh arose that knew not Joseph. From that point on, there was a fear of these people who were multiplying quite dramatically compared to their culture. The Lord did this incredible work. At an appointed time, a man by the name of Moses came to set the people free. Not willingly, mind you. Moses wasn't exactly a willing participant. Can't you send someone else? I mean, I'm, I'm of slow speech and slow tongue. And God says, well, who created your tongue? Yeah, I know, but, you know, you know please send someone else. You know? So Moses didn't, even re- didn't really want to go. He was 80 years old at this time. He was 40 years in Egypt. He was 40 years in the wilderness. The Lord called him to, redeem, to take these people out. At the age of 80 years old, there he walks in with his brother and he says unto Pharaoh, the leader of the known world at the time, let my people go. The Lord said, let my people go. But God said he's not going to do it so willingly. God said, matter of fact, it's not with a strong hand that he's going to lead you out of Israel. It'll be a strong hand that's going to do it. I'm going to be sending plagues. I'm going to be turning the river Nile into blood. The rivers into blood. I'm going to send plagues upon the earth. Frogs and locusts. Flies. The list went on. Incredible, incredible things that God was doing within that land. Unbelievable things. And it took the Passover. It took the death of the firstborn, a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. A picture that the Israelites were going to continue to retain and maintain through history after that. They were supposed to be keeping the Passover. They didn't, you know. They didn't keep the Passover very well at all. Not at all. But that's what they were supposed to do. It was for perpetual generations to keep the Passover. The death of the firstborn, you were made free. From the death of the firstborn, you were made free. If we have the death of the firstborn, our Lord Jesus Christ, and should we accept it, we're made free. The picture is the same. Pharaoh lost his son. Many houses in that time lost their firstborn. But those, those that have put the blood on the doorpost, the blood of the lamb, a perfect lamb, and that lamb was our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible continues to teach that he is the Lamb of God and his blood covers us. The angel of death passes over. So all those that marked the doorpost, the angel of death passed over and they were spared and saved. But all those that didn't, incidentally, didn't matter whether you're an Egyptian or a Jew. If you put the blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over. (laughs) Fantastic, isn't it? So the angel of death passed over. And with a strong hand, matter of fact, not just with a strong hand, the Egyptians gave them jewels and gold and everything. Go, please, go from us, leave us. No sooner had they left, 
Pharaoh's heart was hardened again, wasn't it? They got to a particular place where they were led that there was no way of escape. But the Lord said he will be a fire leading them during the day. Smoke by day, fire by night, sorry. That was going to be a picture, a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. He was going to be leading them. They're there. You understand there's two million people here. Two million. This is a massive number of people being led. And the Lord is appearing as a fire and, 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 and a smoke by day. They take him to the sea. They're trapped there. Or they didn't know they, need, they were worried about being trapped, but they didn't realise Pharaoh was on their tail. Pharaoh came after them. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They walked across this sea dry shot, a wall of water on both sides, which ended up capturing over the top of the ancient Egyptians. Have a look, look at everything that happened and listen to what he says here in this psalm. And we'll start from verse 12. And I want you to think, these are people that seen the reality of God. You'd figure they got no excuse. And Pastor Frank was saying the same thing, we're no different. Have a look at this. Marvellous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through and he made the waters to stand up as an heap. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud and in the night with a light of fire. He claved the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink out as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers and they sinned yet more against him by provoking the most high in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob. Jacob is Israel. It speaks of Israel. And anger also came up against Israel. Because they believed not in God... And trusted not in his salvation, though he commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven and had rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them of the corn of heaven, man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the heaven and by his power he brought in the south wind. He rained flesh upon them as dust and feathered fowls like as the sand of the sea. And he let it fall in the midst of their camp, round about their habitations. So they did eat and were filled, for he gave them of their own desire. They were not estranged from their lust, but while their meat was yet in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the the chosen men of Israel. For all this they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. Should we be surprised when... The heathen, the man rejecting God, stands at the very face of creation itself, looking at life, looking at the heavens. Should we be surprised that he believes not for his wondrous works? You'd figure if anybody was going to believe, a doctor would. The miracle of birth, the miracle of life, how it works. No, they don't. next portion of this is what I call the only absolute it's about the word of God verse 7 the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple the statutes of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the Lord is clean enduring forever the judgment of the Lord are true and righteous altogether This is speaking about the word of God, but I want you to notice that its placement, its placement is after this creation. Why is it after the creation? It shouldn't be after the creation if you think about it on one hand, because the word precedes creation as far as we understand. John chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Hebrews 11.3 tells us that through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Quickly go back to Genesis chapter 1 again. Let's have a quick look. And what we see is that the word of God precedes creation itself. 
Genesis chapter 1, have a look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Have a look at verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. Verse 20, and God said. Verse 24, and God said. And his final act of creation. In verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air. We see the word of God precedes creation. Matter of fact, it actually caused creation into be. He spoke this world into existence. He speaks and it happens. Unbelievable. So what we're dealing with here, however, in Psalm 19, is referring to the written word. Not the word incarnate, but the written word. Often very difficult to distinguish within scripture. The context usually reveals that as true. But here he speaks in this first one. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's the law of God, his law, that's able to convert the soul. And the law we speak about, we think about the Ten Commandments. We think about the written law of God. Most of us think we're pretty good, yeah? I'm pretty good. I thought I was pretty good anyway, compared to him. I'm pretty good. I'm an angel. I reckon if I do 51% good... God's got no choice. I'm in heaven. I'm there. I'm there. 51% good. But the Lord's actually given us some commandments. They're not suggestions. They're commandments. And he holds us accountable to them. And in the breaking of any of those commandments, now consider them, there's ten of them, consider them as a chain of ten links. Okay? And think for a moment that you're hanging off the bottom link. Underneath you is a pit, a very hot pit, a pit that you don't want to be falling into. The breaking of one of those commandments leaves you condemned. It breaks one of those links. It's a picture of the holiness and the righteousness of God. And God can only have fellowship with those that are as righteous as he. Sorry. None of you fit. None of you fit. The Bible says that for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In Romans 3.20. Turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Just for a moment. We'll just read a couple of verses. Romans chapter 7. Let's read from verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Interesting coveting, isn't it? Coveting is the only one of the Ten Commandments that you don't do on the outside. Oh, you can be the Pharisee and you can make sure that you're never stealing, never doing this, never doing it. Anything that people can see, you're not doing But in your heart, you can lust and covet like mad and not a single person in the world can tell. Except for the one that knows the heart. That's our Lord. It's him that we sin against when we covet. And then he says in verse 8, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. In other words, all manner of sin, wretchedness within us. For without the law, sin was dead, he says. So when there was no law, think about it, okay? If there's no law, if there was no law that said you you don't have to reverse out of your driveway, there's not a problem, was there? All of a sudden you've got a law that tells you you're not allowed to do that, now you've got a problem. Now you've got a problem. You need to deal with it. And that's what we have here. Why does this happen? Because when man becomes sensitive to the truth and the knowledge that he has transgressed the law of God, There comes either a recognition of the need of redemption, in other words, being reconciled, redeemed, 
having that sin covered and paid for, to be made right with God, or, now there's two things that the law seems to do, one is recognise in your heart the need for redemption, the other is utter contempt. Utter contempt. One leads to salvation, the other to damnation. If you think within your heart that you can't keep the law, there's contempt for the law, isn't there? Stupid law. They come up with this stupid law. I'm going to do whatever I like, you know? Stupid law. Can't do that with the Lord. You've got a problem now. Because you see, the law of God is absolute. The law of God exists whether you like it or not. You are going to be accountable before God whether you like it or not. Do you know why the scientific community and so many people want to reject God? Do you know why? It's simple. It's not that hard to work out. You see, if you were created, if there's a God, you were created. If you were created, then you were created for a purpose. And if you're created for a purpose, you're going to be accountable. You're going to be accountable. So I can sit there with all my heart and say, no, God doesn't exist. No, I'm not going to be accountable for anything. Remember, the whole psychiatric idea is to get rid of guilt, isn't it? Jerry, is that true? Yeah, got to get rid of guilt. Got to put guilt away. Can't have guilt. But it's that very guilt that leads you to look at the Lord and say, Lord, what should I do to be saved? What can I do to be saved? I can't, I can't clean myself enough. Martin Luther had exactly the same problem. He was deeply embedded in a church, in a Catholic church, a Catholic system at the time, who taught him, these are the things that you need to do. And climbing up these steps, realising the pain he was putting himself through, because he's, what can a man do to be righteous with God? What can a man do? And then the words of Scripture sang out in his mind, the just shall live. By faith. It's by faith. Faith in what? By faith in the one that redeemed you. The faith in the one that died on the cross. Faith in the one that purchased you to give you life. Can you reject it? Absolutely you can. You know, as simple as the gospel is, it's rejected by people all the time. Have a look at the size of this church. You figure everybody should be in here. This is a simple message. It's a simple truth that the Bible teaches. <coughs> it's a simple truth, but that's the role of the law. The role of the law is for you to recognise your sin and bow to the foot of the cross. The one that loved you more than you love yourself. The one that loved your soul more than you love your own soul. And even speaking to you Christians, it's the same, guys. Even speaking to you, Do you love your own soul enough to live for him? That's the role of the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You have the word of God, yeah? You've got the word of God? Yeah. Got a couple of pages. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Wisdom is difficult to attain. And we've got a devil, we've got one that's an adversary. Can't stand the word of God. The devil's done all he can to destroy the testimony of the Lord. In the English language, we've got over 200 versions of what God said. Over 200 versions of what God said. More than 200 differing testimonials creating confusion and not assurance. Each one differing from another enough to receive their own copyright, protecting theft of the words created by their owners. But the Bible says the word of God is not bound. Copyright shouldn't bind the word of God, should it? Should it? I mean, shouldn't the word of God be free for everyone? Shouldn't it be available for anyone? How can you protect the words of God? How, how, how do you... I don't understand. I mean, if they're my words, fair enough. You know, I come up with a logo, a design for my business and stuff like that. I can put a copyright on it, yeah? Because it's mine, right? It comes from me. Yeah, you can read the NIV, it's got a copyright on it. You're not allowed to, not allowed to copy that book. 
Why? Whose words are they? Open the cover and find out whose words they are. Now, I'm one of those crazy people. I'm one of those mad ones that actually believe within the authorised version I have the very perfect word of God. I believe every single word in there is absolutely true and sure. Now, you can choose to accept it or you can choose to reject it. The difference is I know I have a sure word. I don't believe God's lost any single one of them through translation. I believe they're all there and they're all there on purpose. If they weren't there, then the testimony of the Lord is not sure. The testimony of the Lord is not sure. My friends, if we cause one to doubt the surety of a single word in Scripture, the simple mind then asks, which ones are sure? Which ones are sure? St. Augustine said, Faith will totter if the authority of the Scriptures begin to, sh- begin to shale. And then, if faith totter, love itself will grow cold. What do you see in the church big time today? What do you see? Love's grown cold. What does the Lord say? When I return, shall I find faith on the earth? What does he speak about our love for him? Hot and cold? No, they're lukewarm. The love is for themselves. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Both segments making clear the effect of God's words on those willing to receive them. It's incredible because this next portion, this, these, these next five verses speak about this wonderful thing about the, the, the word of God. And remember I was saying that this is like a testimony. You come to realise that God exists and then all of a sudden he leads you into his word. Then all of a sudden you believe that the word and the testimony that you have is sure and it leads you further. You start looking at the word of God and you start looking at it and thinking, wow, the statutes of the Lord are right. And what does it do? It rejoices the heart. Why? Because you've got a sure foundation. You've got something stable now. You've got something that's not dependent on the whim of every other philosopher and every other person that comes along. You've got something that's absolutely stable. Rock solid. Rock solid foundation. Mate, there is no greater feeling knowing that if I turn to the word of God, I'm going to find truth. doesn't matter whether I turn this page or whether I turn this page. I don't have to do the Tatsalato Bible to find what truth is. Every single page, I have truth. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Do you know that when you obey the Lord, when you trust in Him with anything, when you obey something in Scripture that you previously rejected and neglected, and you decide to obey it through faith, it enlightens your eyes. All of a sudden, it's like you're born again again. You know? Wow, that's really true. But you never realised it was true until you obeyed. You know that? This is, it's amazing. When you discover that God exists, you become like that young lady. Everywhere you look, you see him. Everywhere you look, you think, I was blind and now I can see. The same applies when you obey his commands. When you obey his word and you obey what he teaches, it's exactly the same. You start realising they're true. Oh, that's why. I do this and this. So I I, I didn't want to really believe it because parts of the Bible I don't really agree with at the moment, you know. I don't really agree with parts of the Bible at the moment. But, you know, when you do, and when you realise that in yourself, you don't hold the truth. Guys, you don't hold the truth. You've got philosophers all over the place saying this thing and then another one supersedes that one and then another one supersedes that one another one supersedes that one. We get the same thing almost in mathematics, Euclid's geometry. They actually started to realise there is no truth. What age are we in today? The age of postmodernism. What do they teach today? You've got your truth. I've got my truth. What do they do with the word truth? They change it. They turn it into the word opinion. It can't work, can it? You know, there is no such thing as truth. Really, is that true? They can't even say the sentence without contradicting themselves. There are no things as absolutes. Really, do you believe that absolutely? You see what I'm saying? Truth is truth. And it must exist, it must be absolute, and it must be singular. It's ridiculous. We've got people around here today that think that they can, they can be united in error. We've got churches all over the place. How can you be united in error? That's another contradiction, my friends. Because there is no end to the scope of error. There's only one true north. Every other circuit on that compass is not true north. You understand 
You understand what I'm trying to say? It can't be united in error. It's an oxymoron again. It doesn't fit. doesn't work. The law of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, the fear of the Lord comes up in Scripture. I did a bit of a search on where it is, so it's not because I'm some sort of genius scholar. I've got a computer, which is pretty handy. And we've got a few areas there. It speaks about the fear of the Lord. In Psalm 19.9, it says it's clean. Psalm 111, verse 10, it says it's the beginning of wisdom. Then we have the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The beginning of wisdom again. Strong confidence is the fear of the Lord. A fountain of life is the fear of the Lord. Instruction of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. You know? It's going to endure forever. It's a fear. It's an awe in God. But God help you if you lose the actual fear. You know, Our Lord says, don't fear man who can only destroy the body, but fear him who is able to cast the body and the soul in hell. That's the one you can fear. Guys, if you're confident, if you are confident that you're going to go to the throne, the judgment of the Lord, if you are confident right now that you're going to be able to stand there and say, I've got a few things I want to say to God, my friend, you're going to get there. All confidence will be lost. Nothing but a fear that you cannot even begin right now to comprehend. A fear so great Words can't even describe it. All confidence will be lost if you are prepared right now to stand before God and try and tell him something. The fear of the Lord endures forever. But there is that other component of that fear, which is one of wonder and joy and hope and trust, obedience, faith. This increases, this doesn't go away either. Enjoying him forever. Fear of the Lord endureth forever. And then the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And I get this told to me all the time. You know, God's commandments, God's laws, all that, really need updating. We need to move with the times a little bit. You know what I mean? Need to move with the times. Right. So upgrading, updating. Do you notice how they even use those words? Needs updating. No one would ever say the commandments of God need downgrading, do they? Isn't it amazing how people around you everywhere sit there and say, yeah, yeah, no, um, you know, we're working to improve society. Do you see any evidence of that anywhere? You know, every generation says same thing, don't they? You've heard it? Kids these days. Yeah, ever said that? Come on, blokes, you ever said that? Did your father ever say that? Oh, kids these days. I'm saying the same thing, apprentices these days. Every, and you know what? They're right. They're 100% right. So imagine, back in my day, you know, my father was saying, kids these days, oh, I've got plenty of little ones up the backside because I didn't do the right thing, you know. Not plenty, but, you know, he was a pretty gentle kick, wasn't it? A few, a few, you know. Why? Kids these days. Same thing. Today, kids these days. Sadly, tomorrow is going to be worse than today. Things aren't getting any better. Things aren't getting any better. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are perfect. God's judgments and his commandments are absolutely perfect. Obey them and as Pastor Frank said this morning, there will be a blessing. Do you know that if you obey them even as a non-believer, you're blessed? You're blessed in this life because you're leading a good life. I know plenty of people that don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who are leading a pretty moral life. Matter of fact, I probably know more people that are unbelievers leading better lives than people that are believers. Ah, oh, you know, the hypocrisy of people who call themselves Christians these days is folklore. I mean, that, that is just renowned. Why? Let me ask you a question. When you flag yourself as an enemy of the devil, who's he going to go up against? Yeah? He's going to be attacking you as much as he can and trying to bring you down. He's going to ruin your, your witness. He's going to destroy your fellowship. He's going to wreck all that stuff around you. Why? Because you flagged yourself as his enemy. But if you're not his enemy and if you're his buddy-buddy friend, what happens to you? All of a sudden, wealth increases. This happens, that happens, and everything's going well. 
Let me finish off with these last couple of bits. Sorry if I've kept you here a bit longer, but it's a big psalm. There's so much there. You could speak a sermon on every verse. This is the next segment, which is wonderful. He says in verse 10, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The king of Israel says, More to be desired are they than gold. Wow! More to be desired than that. What he's saying is, better than earthly riches is the word of God. Better than any earthly riches is the word of God. His son, his name is Solomon, King Solomon. The wealthiest man history has ever known. He had it all. He had everything. He had everything. He says the same thing. I'll just read you a passage. You don't have to turn there. But if you want to turn there, you can follow me along. It's in Ecclesiastes. And this is a testimony of this king. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 1 to 11. This is King Solomon speaking. Understand he had everything. And listen to what he says in this first part of Ecclesiastes. He said, I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good. He's doing a whole bunch of testing, trying to see what life's about. He's, he's trying this, and he's trying that, he's trying everything. For the son, what, to see my heart, what was good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith, the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. I also had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So was I great and increased more than all that went before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labour, and this was my portion of all my labour. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labour that I had laboured to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Any wonder why these incredibly wealthy individuals, people that look like they've got it all, they're movie stars, they have fame, they have fortune, they have everything before them, and they destroy their lives. Why? Meaning's not found there. Truth isn't found there. Wholeness isn't found there. Fullness of life and joy isn't found there. You're relying on your things around you to give you, make you happy. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. And we have plenty of evidence for it, but what do we want? What what does Solomon say at the end? Have a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'll read it for you. Chapter 12. This is how he concludes. After doing everything, we've got eight other chapters, ten chapters before this of him living his own life and showing you. Listen to how he concludes. And he says in verse 13, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's why, that's why the words of God are as gold, better than gold, much fine gold. That's why. He says, Moreover, by them is our servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The reality is that we can live our life any way we like. We have the freedom to choose. Any way we want to live our life, we have the freedom to choose. Do you know that? We can do whatever we like. Isn't that great? Fantastic. But there is one thing we can't choose, and that's the consequences of whatever life we lead. We've got a word here that warns us, tells us the consequences. Lead a foolish life, this is the consequences. Lead a righteous life, this is the consequences. How can we be sure of that? 
Because God spoke this universe into existence. We live in a universe that was spoken into existence. His laws are throughout it. Weave throughout the fabric of this universe. That's why when you do this, this happens. And when you do this, this happens. Modern paganism calls it karma. Whatever you get is going to come back to you. So give out good things and good things will come back. All right? It's a corruption of the truth, but it's got a hint of it in there, hasn't it? It's got a hint of it in there. This is the reality. The, 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 when you were speaking about the word of God, moreover, by them is our servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Holding them, obeying them, trusting them, there is great reward. Then he moves into the petition. He says, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. He says, sorry, in verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. So few of us can understand our own errors. We can't understand the things that we do wrong. And King David is actually praying that. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Verse 13. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Then his final petition. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. The word of God's perfect. It has the ability to transform your life. If you're not reading your scriptures, don't think that it's not affecting people that are around you. Ladies, if you're holding on to your husband's coattails and thinking he's righteous and I'll take a bit of his righteousness, foolish. Very foolish. Very foolish. Because there's other people that are relying on you. The need to hear you. Men, if your wife is more righteous than you, and she's reading and studying the word of God, oh, you should be ashamed. I'm really sorry to say it, but you should be ashamed. How are you going to lead a righteous life? How are you going to lead your families? How are you going to do that which is right in God's eyes and be the man that God created you to be? Children, and you, if you think it's just all up to your parents, you're missing out on the greatest fruit of your life. You're missing out and you're settling for crumbs. If all you're hoping on is what this life's going to bring you, you're settling for crumbs. This is more to be desired than gold. They have a much fine gold. Trust in his word and do those basic things. But please trust in his word. If you need to know the Lord, and bend your knee before him. Repent of your sin and ask him to come into your life and he will be there. He will be there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this blessed time and how I pray, dear Lord, though the message was long, I pray, dear Father, it would indeed sink down deep into the hearts of many that are here. Father, I thank you again. I pray, dear Lord, for each and every one that's here. I ask you for all of us that you would help us grow in our love, in our faith, in our trust in you. Help us not trust in ourselves, dear Lord, as we have such a tendency to do. Thank you again and praise your wonderful name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.